So we're in Romans chapter 11, verse 1. Um, Paul says, I ask them, did God, I ask then, did God reject his people? By no means. So Paul's using that familiar form of argument again, this imaginary debate. And Paul here is echoing an argument that he's been hashing out since chapter 9. In fact, chapter 9, verse 6 is almost identical here to 11.1. Chapters 9 through 11, where we're at now, this third section of Romans, deals with how the gospel fulfills God's promise to Israel. Because you see, Paul, with with, uh, spirit-led discernment, knows that uh, the Israelites were confused, that they thought that God had turned the tables on them because they had had, uh, received teaching from the religious leaders who had misinterpreted the Bible and had glossed over the gospel of grace and really emphasized a false gospel that the Bible doesn't teach in the Old Testament or the New Testament where uh, what was encouraged was salvation came through working very hard to obey the law and through having Jewish DNA, through being ethnically Jewish. And it seemed like, hold on, they thought to themselves, well, Paul, you're saying that salvation is through Christ. So has God's word failed? That's what we're dealing with here. Um, So up until this point, Paul has been making the the case that all are convicted sinners before God in chapters 1 through 4, all of us. And then in chapters 5 through 8, that Christ has set apart a new humanity of which believers get to be a part. We get to be a part of recreating what sin has stolen and broken, both in our lives and in the world, with Jesus as the father and the founder of this new humanity. And do you see what Paul's doing here? He's moving his readers away from salvation through works to salvation through Christ. And he's doing so with meticulous attention to detail, because he knows that we naturally, that believers throughout the centuries, we struggle with salvation by grace. We'd rather work for it because we want to feel like we deserve it. And Paul is saying in a million different ways that it's all about being in Christ. In fact, those two words appear often in Romans, in Christ. So then in chapter 11, tonight we'll see how Paul wraps up his cry to his Jewish audience that he has great sorrow and unceasing anguish that they would come to know Christ. And in fact, that's the theme of this section, the heart of this section, that, that Paul has this desire to even trade his own salvation for the salvation of his Jewish brethren, and that should be our hearts. Up until chapter 11, he's established through many different arguments one simple argument, and that one simple point, and that's this. Just because more Jews have not come to know Christ, it doesn't mean that God's word has failed. But now in chapter 11, Paul switches gears a little bit here. He moves deeper into the discussion on why God's word has not failed. More specifically, he addresses what will happen to ethnic Jews. And again, ethnic Jews are those who are genetically Jewish, they're racially Jewish, but they don't have a relationship with Christ. They do not have saving faith. And he addresses this because now he was addressing his Jewish audience primarily. Now he's talking to the Gentile Christians as well who may have been tempted to think, well, okay, the Jews are now out of God's redemptive plan and we're now in. Paul not only tells of his burden for the Jews, but also God's burden in chapter 11 and how we as Gentile Christians should be burdened for Jews to come to know their Messiah. 
I will argue tonight that we as a church specifically and the church in general has all but forgotten the Jews. And I believe this passage is a rebuke in terms of application to all of us, me maybe maybe especially. So let's dig in. Let's think and pray together in Jesus' name. Let's work hard with his strength and his grace and his might to understand this passage And I want to commit together during this time in prayer with you, my brothers and sisters, not to be intellectually lazy, not to be bored, and not to daydream, but learn about God and his amazing character. Receive blessing from him and his word. Get to know him through his word. Can we commit to that together through the power and grace of Christ? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, please, we love your word. Lord, even when our flesh fights against it, when naturally we get bored by it, confused by it, thank you, Lord, that if we'll just just take a turn away from self to you and say, I want more, you'll shower us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms, your word says, and we pray for that right now. Please illuminate your word. Lord, please protect us from the condemner who says, you can't do this, you won't do this. Lord, we know that by our own strength, we can't and we won't apply your word, but all we have to do is turn to you. And you'll give us the power and the desire to do what pleases you. You promise it in your word, and we claim it now in Jesus' name. Amen. So, four questions that will help us answer together the important role that Jews will play in redemptive history. We're going to ask four questions to help us understand that and uh, uh, develop, in terms of application, a desire and a, a desire to reach Jewish people and a heart for them, a burden for them. So that's what we're going to be about tonight. So the first question is this that we see in this passage in Romans 11. How can you say that God did not reject ethnic Israel when so many have failed to believe? Again, to define terms, ethnic Israel are those who are Jewish by heritage but don't know Christ. They remain lost in their sins as as do many still today, sadly. So Paul provides a number of arguments to defeat the false notion that God's given up the Jews. Because that's the thought. Well, has God just given up on the Jews? Has he just given up on ethnic Israel? Yeah, he's got spiritual Israel, those who truly know God and love God. But has he given up on, on those who don't really know him? Paul says no, by no means. And the first way he argues against that is the Paul argument. Romans 11, verse 1. He says, I ask then... Did God reject his people? By no means. I am an Israelite myself, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. So Paul, keep in mind, they knew his story. They almost surely knew Paul's story, his testimony. And he's saying here, they would have known that Paul was blasphemous, that he persecuted Christians, that he was hard-hearted towards God. And what did God do in Acts chapter 9? He stopped him dead in his tracks, made him blind, physically blind, that he might spiritually see his Messiah. Paul's saying, if God did it for me, he can do it for others as well. So so no, God has not given up on the Jews. Look at me. And then there's the election argument. Romans 11, verse 2, first part. God did not reject his people whom he foreknew. So God foreknew. He knew in advance which Jews would receive him and which Jews would reject him. So those who were true spiritual Jews had faith to see and respond to Jesus. 
That's Paul's argument. Another uh, point that Paul makes as to why God has not rejected Israel, the Elijah argument, and this one's a little more tricky, so uh, let's hang together here. The Elijah argument. Man, Romans is thick, isn't it? It is just thick. You just can't gloss over Romans. You can't. So that's why we need to pray for one another to get this. Romans 11, verse 2, second part. Don't you know that Scripture says in the passage about Elijah, how he appealed to God against Israel? Lord, they've killed your prophets and torn down your altars. I'm the only one left, and they are trying to kill me. What was God's answer to him? I have reserved for myself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So here Paul's using a teaching technique he's used many times where he's referencing an Old Testament story that his Jewish audience would have been familiar with. Just a small quote from an Old Testament story that would help these Roman Israelites connect with his argument. So Paul's drawing from the account of Elijah, where Elijah was venting to God. Elijah was angry and discouraged because the Israelites had abandoned God, and I, I think I don't think it's reading between the lines to say Elijah wanted God to just do something pretty drastic to the Jews. So let's see what God says. 1 Kings 19, verse 14. He, that's Elijah, replied. So this is the story Paul's referring to hundreds of years prior in redemptive history in the Old Testament. He replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. The Lord said to him, Go back the way you came and go to the desert of Damascus. When you get there, anoint Hazel, king of Aram. Also anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi. I don't know how to pronounce that. Nimshi, king of Israel. And anoint Elisha, son of Shethap, from Abel Meholah, to succeed you as prophet. Jehu will put to death any who escaped the sword of Hazel, and Elisha will put to death any who escaped the sword of Jehu. Yet I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal and whose mouths have not kissed him. So Elijah tells God how hard-hearted the Israelites have been. Of course, God already knows. And God shares with Elijah what his discipline is going to be for these rebellious Jewish people. But in the same breath, he says, there's also going to be a remnant of 7,000 true Israelites, true Jews, who love me and follow me, that he'll protect. So the argument is that the rebellion against God's Messiah in the church at Rome is nothing new, that it's been happening all along. Redemptive history has been filled with the Israelites rebelling against God's agenda, but there's always been a faithful remnant, a true Israel, so to speak. That God has and will save, so God's word has not failed. He has not abandoned the Jews. Then there's the grace argument. And this may be the verses in Romans 11 that we're most familiar with. Romans 11, verse 5. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. And if by grace, then it cannot be based on works. If it were, grace would no longer be grace. So Paul's connecting the faithful remnant that he just discussed in the story of Elijah to the faithful remnant at the church in Rome. That those who are uh, faithful, those who are the remnant among the Jews are faithful simply because of God's grace alone. They didn't do anything. He doesn't want them to get the wrong idea to think that there's this set of good and decent Jews 
that somehow have figured it out and are deserving of God's favor. They didn't do anything to deserve it. So Paul's arguments here in summary are very simple. He's saying that God's word has not failed the Jewish nation because of election and grace. And we've gone over what that word election means. He uses two illustrations to drive home these points. The faith of Paul and the way in which God preserved the remnant during Elijah's time, electing 7,000. And both point to God's word not failing. But what does this argument prove in terms of who carries the guilt of Jews who are not receiving Christ? Who carries the guilt? And that leads into our next question. If God didn't reject Israel, then how have they missed righteousness through Christ? Right? That's the next question Paul answers, and it makes sense. If Paul's saying that no, or the Holy Spirit through Paul is saying, no, no, God has not given up on Israel, then the logical question, very, it makes sense, would be, hold on, then why aren't, they, why aren't they receiving Christ? So Romans 11, verse 7, what then? What the people of Israel sought so earnestly, they did not obtain. The elect among them did, but the others were hardened. The argument Paul makes here as to why more Jews have not been able to jump on board with God's plan of salvation is that they were pursuing righteousness on their own instead of righteousness through faith by grace. I believe that's the greatest temptation any human being will ever face. We want salvation to be about what we do, not about grace. No exception here. We read the same thing last week, didn't we, in Romans 10 verse 3. You don't have to look that up. I'll just read it. It says, since they did not know, again, these ethnic Jews, since they did not know the righteousness of God and sought to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Christ is the culmination of the law so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. So they rejected God's law, and here's how it worked. Here's how this hardening worked. First, Israel sought God's righteousness. They understood that that God's not going to have any part of sin, so they really were seeking to obey God's law passionately. Second, they were confronted with a fork in the road. They could either seek salvation through works, through, through careful and diligent obedience to the law, or they could receive salvation through grace. And they had, uh, because of their hard-heartedness, they had glossed over and been blind to God's message of, of faith as a gift from God through grace in the Old Testament all the way from Genesis to the end of the Old Testament. They had missed it. The majority chose works. They chose the law. But the elect, those God foreknew, the remnant, received faith as a gift and not by works. Those who chose works were hardened like Pharaoh. And we read about Pharaoh, this this hard-hearted, oppressive, dictatorial uh, Egyptian ruler In Romans chapter 9, you can read about him in the book of Exodus. I'm not going to take time to talk about him again tonight. And then in Romans 11.8, it says, As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that could not see and ears that could not hear to this very day. So again, the question is, how did they miss God's righteousness? How did they miss it? Paul's clearly quoting the Old Testament here, and this time it's a double whammy. He's quoting Moses And Isaiah also quotes Moses as well. So, I mean, there's a lot of weight on this verse. So Moses warned Israel that their rebellion in his day would result in spiritual blindness. And Isaiah does the same. And he uses these various words that, of course, Paul quotes here. 
He says that they would rebel to this very day. And Paul's saying, you're still rebelling now. So you obeyed all the way through the time of Moses, all the way through the time of Isaiah in redemptive history, and now all the way to the church. This is the way it's always been. God knew it. This is nothing new. God knew this was going to happen in his sovereignty. This hardening has always been. So God gave them over to sinful rebellion. But keep in mind, their rebellion was demonstrated in their attempt to be made right with God through their own efforts. We're not talking about a bunch of debaucherous living necessarily. They were trying to be good, and that was separating them from God. Doesn't that seem strange? They're trying to obey God's law, and it's separating them from God. We don't want to miss that. I mean, how did these people, these Jews who sought hard after God's law, reject his love and become so hard-hearted to the gospel? They're really trying. I mean, these people made significant sacrifices, as we talked about last week. Romans 11, 9 It says, and David says, may their table become a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Again, speaking of ethnic Israel, may their eyes be darkened so they cannot see and their backs be bent forever. So this time, Paul Paul pulls from a Davidic psalm, Psalm 69. So now he's he's pulling from Moses, he's pulling from Isaiah, he's pulling from David, who all of these Israelites in Rome would have absolutely revered to add weight to the argument. But you know, it was tough for these Jews and us because someone can be trying so desperately hard to please God that they then passionately resist the idea of grace. Have you ever known somebody like that? Maybe you are that person. Why do people do this? It's strange. It's a process of hardening. These Jews and people throughout time can conclude that since God is holy and doesn't want to have any part of evil, then they must somehow work very hard to get rid of any sin and impurity in their life. And it seems demeaning and disrespectful to God to say it is simply by grace. I don't do anything to deserve it. God deserves better than that. I should have to earn it. That's how people fall into it. That's how these Jews in Rome fell into this hardening, and it's how we can fall into a hardening. I've heard people say that many times when I've shared the gospel, many, many, countless times. Well, I just find it hard to believe that someone could be on their deathbed, done all of these awful things, and then just cry out to God and they'd be saved. That is precisely what the gospel does. It is by grace from start to finish. We can do nothing to deserve salvation. The more we work hard to deserve God's favor, the more separated we will be from him because we will be God. And we'll create God in our own image saying that Brady is better than me, but I'm better than, I'm not going to say anyone else's name. No, Josie, that's not true. I saw your rap on Facebook, by the way. Very good. Um, You guys should look at it. It's on Christine Kimball's Facebook. Very good. Very gifted. We need to have her rap here on Sunday night. It's actually very good. You guys would like it a lot more than my teaching, I'm sure. Uh, I would like it more than my teaching. (laughs) Where am I? That's a good question. Yes. So that separates us from God. That's always been the worst of sins. Did you know that? It's not drugs, it's not alcohol, it's not adultery, it's legalism. It's legalism. 
If you think you're not all that bad and that you're better than others and that somehow God should approve of you because you're you, then you don't understand grace. You don't understand the first thing about salvation, and I don't care how much of the Bible you know. Praise him. Uh, it seems logical based on our experience. I mean, imagine a convicted murderer, okay, on death row who's not only released simply because they repent, but they're invited to live in the mayor's mansion and be given a position of honor. That'd be unthinkable, wouldn't it? But that is exactly what God does for us in his grace. And these Roman Jews just couldn't get their hands or their minds around it, and neither can we often. It doesn't compute with our flawed nature. But we need to move on here. I'd love to just spend our whole time on those two verses. The next question here moves, uh, moves towards, if ethnic Jews had been turned over to their hard heart towards God's plan, then what's going to happen to ethnic Israel, these Jews who don't know Christ, which is the vast majority then and the vast majority now? Most Jews do not know Jesus. What's going to happen? Well, God hasn't given up on them. He already said that in verse 1 of chapter 11, and he says it again in verse 11. So uh, Romans 11, 11. Again, I ask, Paul, ask it again. He knows they're going to struggle with this. Did they stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? Did ethnic Israel stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? Should you give up on them? Gentile Christians, should you give up on them? Jewish Christians, not at all. Rather, because of their transgression, that's sin, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. But if their transgression, that is, these, these ethnic Israel, uh, Israelites, but if their transgression means riches for the world and their loss means riches for the Gentiles, how much greater riches will their full inclusion bring? I think this passage is neglected and ignored by the church. And may we not turn our backs from it. I, for one, feel convicted, and I think you should too if you don't have a heart for the Jews, based on this passage. So the Jews listening, and even the Gentiles could think to himself, it's all about the Gentiles now. So the Gentiles are in, the Jews are out. So Paul's turning the tables on him. He's been talking to the Jews most of the time. Now he's saying, you Gentiles, don't get prideful. Remember where you come from. And this message is to us tonight. The Lord says through Paul here, not at all. I haven't given up. Paul says, says very clearly that even the rebellion of Israel was part of God's plan and would be used to bring who to salvation? Who? Us. Most, or if not all of us in this room, Gentile Christians. So Israel transgressed, they sinned, they rebelled against God, and as we already said, their rebellion brought salvation to the Gentiles. And I know this seems kind of crazy. How can Jewish disobedience bring us to Christ, bring Gentiles to Christ back then? How, how, how did that work, and even now? Well, if we think about it for a minute, it makes sense. You see, in the book of Acts, if you read the book of Acts, the story of how the early church grew, how it propagated, what you read is... Uh, uh, Jewish Christians would go into an area and they would preach at the synagogue. And some Jews would receive Christ, but most rejected and were hostile to the message. So then these converted Jews would go into town and share with who? Gentiles. And Gentiles would come to know Christ. And you see, I believe that this was part of God's, well, I know it was part of God's sovereign plan, but I believe the reason was 
If Jews would have enthusiastically received the gospel, then it could have been seen as simply a renewal movement uh, inside Judaism, and Gentiles might have been excluded. So I believe God did this in his sovereignty, using human sinfulness as a way to bring about good. Isn't that cool how God causes all things to work together for the good? Do you see it here in this passage? That's why in 11.12 it says there, that's talking about ethnic Jews, their transgression means riches for the world. Okay, so all those who have received Christ then believe it's because they rejected. So hang with me for a minute. This will all make sense. Romans 11.14, in the hope that I may somehow arise, arouse my people to envy and save some of them. So then Gentile believers are to make Israel envious, according to verse 11 and 14. And envy isn't always a bad thing. It's not used in a negative sense here. If I envy your positive character, your godly character, and it changes me, that's not a bad envy. Envy, we use, when we use it, is usually negative. But it's really the object of what we're envying that determines whether it's righteous or sinful. So here, this is a good envy. So just as these Gentiles only heard the gospel because all along God's plan was to utilize the sinful choices of ethnic Israel to disobey and rebel against the gospel so that now the Jews can only believe because those who accepted Christ were largely Gentile. And now God's plan is that as uh, Jews who have a heart for God would see how all these Old Testament promises are being fulfilled through the Gentiles now, in terms of salvation, in terms of all these great things that are being done for God by Gentiles, that it would cause them to envy and come back to grace, faith through grace alone. In other words, well, let me move on here for time's sake. I'm running a little bit behind. Let me share an example. In Acts chapter 6, I'm not going to read it again just for time's sake, but you can go there if you want. So the early church sets apart officers, or deacons as they're called, to care for the needy. And we're told in verse 7 of Acts chapter 6 that a lot of Jewish priests came to follow Jesus. Why? Well, the priests were supposed to bring the people's tithes and resources to the poor, according to Deuteronomy 15, but that wasn't happening. They weren't doing it. Now, the Christians, under the power of the Holy Spirit, had this generous community where there was no need among them. Because of the Spirit, they were so unselfish. Their money, their resources were, were for the kingdom of God, and there were no needy persons among them. And these priests saw that and were envious because they knew that's what they should have been doing all along. And they came to know Christ. I believe it's stories like that that Paul had in mind when he wrote Romans 11. So in short, first the Jews won the Gentiles, and in the future it will be the Gentiles who will win the Jews. This is a promise. You people who live in Bexley especially and on the east side, you best listen to this. Because I know, and, and you who have friends that are Jewish, it can seem like they're so far from God, but they are a part of his plan. And one day there is going to be a huge revival of Jews who come to know Christ. That is a promise in Scripture. So when you talk to them and it feels like you're talking to a wall, you remember it is a promise. And let, it, let us pray it's coming. And share its coming through the gospel in deed and in action. Amen? 
So the Jews won the Gentiles, and in the future, it will be the Gentiles who will win the Jews. Romans eleven fourteen. In the hope that I may somehow arouse my own people to envy and save some. For if their rejection brought reconciliation to the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the, be- the dead? So verse 14 tells us that this envy uh, uh, among the Jews will only win some of them. But then in verse 16, it says, if the part of the dough offered as first fruits is holy, then the whole batch is holy. If the root is holy, so are the branches. So Paul would count himself among the first fruits, that is, those Jews who came to know Christ early on, uh, you know, Abraham, the prophets, the patriarchs, and all the rest would be part of that group. But the full harvest of believing Jews will come later. That's going to come later on. Hasn't happened yet. So Paul is saying that God has not given up on his ancient people. Paul has not given up on his ancient people. He has great sorrow and unceasing anguish over their rebellion towards God. And he's saying, you Roman Gentiles cannot give up on God's people. That is the kick in the gut that I've been receiving from the book of Romans, and I believe we all need it. Are we creating a community that's the fulfillment of what God has called Israel to be? Would a devout Jew look at our church, look at our community, and be aroused to envy and give the gospel a true and honest hearing? I hope the answer to that is yes. But what does this mean here where it says, oh, that's not good. Hopefully my pages are out of order. If they're not, I can just open the Bible. Oh, there we go. I got it because there's some verses that I, yeah, that would have been bad. Thank you, Lord. You'd have been very, very confused. All right. So I'm going to skip ahead here a little bit. The last question is in light of God and Paul's heart for the Gentiles and their role, the, the Jews' role in God's future plan. And that's this. What kind of relationship should Gentile Christians have with unsaved Jews? What kind of relationship? It's the same application, that, it's the same application for us as it was these Roman Gentiles. From verse 18 on, you'll see that Paul's admonition to the Gentiles is not to be arrogant. They must remember that God's God had a plan for the Jews, he had a, he's a plan for the Gentiles, and we shouldn't draw swords and pick sides. Paul is setting the stage for chapter 12 through the end of the chapter, which we've said many times is about what? Unity. The gospel alone can unify the church, because the church here in Rome is being torn to shreds over this division between Jews and Gentiles. So he's setting the stage, he's putting it on a tee here. Um, Paul warns these Gentiles not to fall into the same trap as the ethnic Jews did in Romans eleven twenty two. Consider, therefore, the kindness and sternness of God, sternness for those who fell, but kindness to you, you Gentile Christians, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you will also be cut off. And if they do not persist, ethnic Israel, if they don't persist in unbelief, they will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. So when it says continue in God's kindness, earlier on in Romans, it says that it's God's kindness that leads to what? Repentance, right? It's God's kindness that leads to repentance. So this isn't saying we can lose our salvation. It's saying that if you don't continue, if you don't know Christ, then you should be afraid. Make sure you're actually saved is the challenge here. So just as the ethnic Jews had an outward appearance of godliness, but their hearts were far from God, so can Gentile Christians 
have an outward display of godliness through going to church, through maybe even getting baptized, taking communion, doing all kinds of volunteer work for the church, but have hearts that are far from God. So the Holy Spirit knew where we were going to head. We, we know there are Christians and churches all over America. There are, there are whole churches and even church uh, pastors and elder boards that fall into this. They are cultural Christians in name, but their hearts are far from God. They do many activities that are Christian, but they don't know Christ. Then in Romans 11, verse 24, he says, I don't want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers. Now, let me stop just for a second. When the Bible uses this word more often than not, mystery, it's not saying enigma or confusion. When it says mystery, it's just God's plan that has yet to be revealed or is being revealed. So there's this great mystery that we don't, we don't know, but God has, re, is, has, is, or will reveal it in the future. So I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters, so that you may not be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. Now this gets a little confusing, doesn't it? All Israel will be saved? What does that mean? Well, we know what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that every Jew will ultimately come to know Christ because Jews in the Old Testament already, many died apart from saving faith, ethnic Israel, who many of which were even disciplined. So it's not advocating universal salvation. That is, God will have mercy on all and save all because we know that uh, much of the Bible says that some will receive judgment in the end among all people, Jews and Gentiles. And there's a variety of interpretations for this word all in verse 26 referring to all Israel but I have a perspective believe it or not that I'm going to share with you and that's this this mystery this revelation of God's plan is already being revealed through the salvation of many Gentiles all the way back to the early church and even now every time a Gentile comes to know Christ all over the world this mystery, this revelation of God regarding Gentile conversion will continue until the full number of Gentiles come in. Those that God foreknows, who have been predestined unto salvation. There will be a number, a number that God knows when the full number of Gentiles will come, will come in. And there, we read that salvation to all Israel will happen in the future once the full number of Gentiles have been brought to faith to stir envy among the Jews that God has prepared. So now all Israel is referring, you guys probably guessed this at this point, it's referring to spiritual Israel, not everyone who is raci racially a Jew, but true spiritual, those who, uh, uh, who follow God through faith by grace alone. And then Paul says in verse 32, for God has bound everyone over to disobedience so that he may have mercy on them all. So all here is, is the, the, all of the Gentiles who will come to know Christ and all of the Jews who will come to know Christ. It doesn't mean everybody everywhere is going to ultimately be saved. Those that God has prepared among the Jews and the Gentiles. And I believe Paul here in this use of all is, is bringing his argument that he started in chapter 9 to full circle. Okay, because 9 through 11 is pretty confusing, and I believe he's bringing it full circle here. That is, the true children of Abraham, the true children of promise, the true, true Israel and saved Gentiles, he chose Isaac and not Ishmael, chosen by God, Jacob and not Esau, Moses was saved and Pharaoh was hardened, 
all leads to God bringing his people, the elect, to salvation by grace. No one deserves it. All are hopelessly lost in sin, but God knows those who will choose him, and he saves them by grace, period. So the main point of this passage as Gentile Christ followers in 2018 is that God would have us carry his burden for the Jews. We should look forward to the full harvest of the Jews, and this passage makes it clear that there'll be a revival, and what a great day that will be, won't it? And for those who know Jewish people, don't assume that they don't want to hear God's message. It could be through your lips and your actions that the Holy Spirit chooses to ignite this revival. Wouldn't that be amazing? Like the prophets of old, did the Jews respond well to them? Do Gentiles today respond well to the gospel as a whole? No, but a revival is inspired and directed by what former pastor and writer Eugene, pa- uh, Eugene Peterson, also the author of the Message Bible, says is a long obedience in the same direction. We got over 20 young people here who uh, are thinking they might be called to full-time missions. Young people, you are to be committed to a long obedience in the same direction. It could be taking on an IFI student. It could be... Uh, Uh, becoming a young life or wildlife leader. It could be becoming a part of our Sunday night prayer time at 5 p.m. It could be uh, becoming a part of the weekly Saturday morning prayer for the nation's time with Greta Neely. But it's little steps, little steps that you take. A long obedience in the same direction. That is what will stir revival among all people, including the Jews. The enemy would love for us to be ashamed of the gospel I believe it's one of the primary ways that we're tempted. Don't be ashamed. Spit it out. The power of Christ lives in us. Spit it out. Whatever it is, you can share your testimony. If you're afraid, do it afraid. If you think it sounds stupid, do it afraid that it sounds stupid. There's power in this message. For those who know Jewish people, don't assume that they trust Christians. I have a dear friend. Her name is Mary who survived the Holocaust, obviously an elderly woman. She has the tattoo on her arm from being in the concentration camps, the number on her arm, the unspeakable things that were done to her and her, most of her family was annihilated and much of it was done in the name of Christ. There were German Christians, most of which who turned a blind eye They had been so indoctrinated with anti-Semitism. In fact, even our Protestant faith has been poisoned with anti-Semitism. And I believe that's why we turn our back on the Jews. Martin Luther himself, the one through which the roots of the Reformation came through, said this. This is quoted. This is in his writing called, On the Jews and Their Lies. And he says this. Set fire to their synagogues or schools. Jewish houses should be razed and destroyed. And Jewish prayer books and Talmudic writings in which such idolatry, lies, cursing, and blasphemy are taught should be taken from them. In addition, their rabbis should be forbidden to teach on pain of loss of life and limb. And as if that wasn't enough, Luther also urged that safe conduct on the highways be abolished completely for the Jews. And that all cash and treasure of silver and gold should be taken from them. 
What he said Jews could do was have a flail, an axe, a hoe, and a spade put into their hands so that young, strong Jews and Jewesses could earn their bread in the sweat of, by the sweat of their brow. These fierce comments have puzzled and embarrassed believers for hundreds of years, many of which otherwise admire the reformer. And they've led to charges that Luther was one of the church fathers of anti-Semitism, and more seriously, Luther's attacks have been thought to pave the way for Hitler himself. There is a repentance here that I think needs to take place in God's church. I believe that Jews have suffered so intensely in every culture throughout time because of God's fierce loyalty and compassionate heart for his ancient people. I believe it's a spiritual attack primed by Satan, and I believe we must respond. Worship team, you guys can go ahead and come on up. Um, now, to close, so pray for the Jews. Share the gospel with your Jewish friends. Love them, serve them. And let's, let's pray for revival to come among the Jewish people. Now, this has been a very confusing passage, but God and his sovereignty, listen to how it closes. And we don't want to gloss over this. This, you know, this isn't just a doxology to end the passage, so to speak. But listen to what he says. It's been, I mean, this has been a rough road, hasn't it, folks? Going through Romans 9 through 11. I mean, it's tough. There's some tough stuff in here. It's hard to make a whole lot of jokes and colorful illustrations teaching through these passages. It's tough. It takes some, some thinking. But then he ends 11 on this. Paul says, Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgment and his past beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. There's so much confusion among this this Roman Jew and Gentile audience as to who's in and who's out and when's this going to happen and when's that going to And he's wrapping it all up saying, Really, the whole goal, the heart, is let's make much of Jesus because he's the one who saves us all. By grace, through faith, we don't understand exactly how it all works, but it, we know it's, it's, he is the one who does it. doesn't mean that we shouldn't think about it, hard about it, or it wouldn't be in here with such great detail. But in the end, the word of God must be read and understood with worship, with the worshipful heart of who Jesus is, or it won't sink in. And we'll become the legalist that Paul is admonishing here. So let's do that now in worship. Lord, we love you. We worship you. We bless you. Lord, we thank you for your grace to understand these very hard teachings. And we pray that you'd help us apply it. Lord, we do pray for our Jewish friends and neighbors and family. Lord, that they would come to know you, that you would teach us how to be so gentle, Lord, but so clear with your gospel message in both our words and our actions, Lord, that they might envy the relationship with you that they were intended to have all along. Please, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen.